feel scared? Proud? Relieved? You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Paul Gallant and we're going to be talking about intervention strategies for working with uh, families that have addiction in their uh, in their systems and we're going to talk about raising the bottom, but before we begin, I'd like to introduce Paul, who is an independent master's level licensed professional counselor and board registered interventionist. He is a member of the Association of Interventionist Specialists, and he's been in the addiction profession for over 22 years. Paul's compassion, respect, and clinical expertise provide each family with the training and confidence to help their loved ones recover. Paul is an international speaker on the subject of intervention and is well-respected in the treatment industry. He is trained in the use of the Johnson model, the systemic family intervention, and invitational model. Success rates are unsurpassed in the industry. Paul has a website, which is www.paulgallant.com. Paul will travel anywhere, anytime, and uh, we'll hear more about Paul's uh, own business um, later on in our show. But welcome, Paul, and maybe we could begin by just talking about um, addiction is a family system, addicted families, however you want to phrase it. But most of the time we focus on the individual. Why is it important to talk about the family? Thank you, Mary. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, addiction is a family disease, and uh, it's quite simple to focus on the addict and point our fingers and say, there's the gal with the problem, or there's the guy with the problem. But what we found gosh, in the past 50 years, is that everyone in the whole family system is affected by the disease of addiction. And in order for us to ensure recovery, we really need to treat the whole system. Uh, it's important to get help for the addict, and it's just as important, we found, to get help for the family members. So in this systemic model, that I practice, our focus really is to get everyone on the recovery bus to bring the idea, the concept, the fact of recovery into this whole system. I know sometimes it's been our experience that um, families know something's going on with a family member, but they're not exactly sure, and they're starting, and, and the family's starting to feel like, wow, this is, this isn't feeling right. What are some uh, characteristics or, or behaviors that family members might see that might mm-hmm. they might want to think about? Wow, maybe there's there's a substance use uh, mm-hmm. disorder going on. Okay. Well, the first thing I try to tell people when I get these phone calls is to trust your gut, to really trust your instinct. Because I've spoken to, especially moms, a lot of moms who've said, "Gosh, I knew this was going on five years ago." And, you know, his dad wouldn't agree or we just, you know, we didn't have hard evidence. And remember, this intervention process, it's not a court case. So we don't have to have uh, pictures of the loved one using chemicals. We don't have to have empty um, bottles or syringes 
ATM withdrawal receipts. We don't need that sort of evidence. Um, so the, the answer to that question is begin to trust your gut. If something, if you feel that something's wrong, there probably is. I tell um, people that intervention really is far down the scale when we talk about treatment options. I've been phoned by, again, parents, although I work with adults more than I work with adolescents or, or young people, but I've been called and the parents say, listen, we think our son is using pot. We've seen his eyes. We smell the odor on him. My first suggestion is to get him in for an assessment, get him to see a counselor. I don't um, do interventions on folks or on families who have someone in the very, very early stages of addiction. So if you um, begin to see things change and there's some differences uh, in behaviors, attitudes, when you see missing money, that's always a big indicator. These addictions cost money. When people can't explain, cannot explain their whereabouts, there's a change in friends, a change in different behaviors. At that point, I think it's important to begin asking questions. And from that place, again, to move toward a professional, a therapist, a counselor, to have a sit down and get a sense of what's going on. And so the intervention becomes a finite part of the continuum. That's right. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I'm very interested in, in people getting care early on in the disease process. By the time I swing into action as an interventionist, we are usually in the pretty acute stages of addiction. And at that point, you know, oftentimes it's a chronic problem. So um, really, truly, I, I, don't, I don't jump up and, and do an intervention again when somebody is bumping into a couple of consequences of their addiction. I get involved after people have been asked more than once to go to treatment to get some help when that's not getting people where they need to be. And when someone in the family system has had enough, then uh, systemic family intervention is a possibility. What is the risk to the family in terms of the, doing an intervention, if there are any? Risk to the family. Yeah. Uh, let's see. If an intervention is done well, I really don't see the risk to a family as opposed to the risk of not doing an intervention. We're talking about it with drug addiction and alcoholism. We're talking about chronic, fatal, progressive illnesses here. So I'm not quite sure about um, the downside of an intervention. I guess I can say this. One of the risks of doing an intervention, let me answer it this way, is um, people will need to change that if I talk with a husband whose wife is alcoholic and he for the past 20 years has managed a, uh, a role in that relationship of superiority, control, uh, you know, contempt, that sort of thing, then 
the risk he would face in doing an intervention with that alcoholic wife is that the expectations would be that he'd, he'd need to change. Mm-hmm. That's whether or not she went to treatment. I know one of the um, things families will often say to us is that we're afraid to, to confront our family member because we're afraid of what they may do to themselves. They may mm-hmm. never speak to us again. Right. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, my answer to that, because I've heard that plenty of times too, is a good addict can keep a family held hostage with their fear. Uh-huh. You know, the fear of suicide, the fear of he'll never talk to us again. And what I say to that is if you're willing to uh, go through a process that is structured, that is safe, that is designed for success, then perhaps you're willing to face these fears. I've been doing this work since 1986, and thank God I've not had a client kill themselves yet. Uh, People do die every single day of untreated addiction problems. So... And yeah, we'll be right question. back to talk more about the process of intervention and when to intervene with Paul Galan. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up the $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
back, everybody. Today we are talking with Paul Gallant, and we are talking about raising the bottom, intervention strategies for working with addicted family systems. And uh, before we went to break, we were just beginning to talk about the process of intervention and what that entails for the family and the individual. So, Paul, could you explain to our listeners a little bit more about what an intervention is and what Certainly. it is? Okay. Certainly. Intervention uh, quite literally means changing the course. And in this process, what we're trying to do is we're trying to touch the person's heart, the identified patient, in such a way that they experience a moment of clarity and that they accept the help that's being offered by the family. Now, this process is designed to be very structured. And that structure is in order to have safety for the patient, the identified client, the addict, and each family member. I lead the family in this process called systemic family intervention through training and education. Then I facilitate the intervention. Uh, there's a pre-intervention before that, then the actual intervention. And then I support the whole family system when the identified patient is in treatment. I talk to the people about writing a letter, and I provide a format. Now, this letter acts as the script for intervention warning. The letter is comprised of four parts. The first part is the I love you part, and that is where the family member will write to their addict all the good stuff, how much, how generous they are, kind, loving. Uh, We talk about the affected person's characteristics that make them lovable. Sometimes a family member has to go way back to find you know, some of those, those good things to say. But the first part is the I love you part. And we start with that piece. So on intervention morning, the uh, IP, the identified patient, perhaps won't feel uh, as attacked or they'll know that this comes from a place of love. So the four parts are, first is I love you. The second part is I'm concerned. And that's where I ask family members to use behaviorally specific examples of their concerns regarding their loved one. Bill, uh, last July, you drove up on the front lawn after drinking. You get out of the car and fell down face first. You smelled strongly of alcohol. The three kids were in the car, and I felt angry and afraid. And generally, each member of the family system can come up with three, four, or five examples. Some people have 20 examples of why they're concerned. Uh, I also tell people, this is how you would answer a question, how do you know your loved one has a problem? So that's the second part. The third part is offer of solution. That's where, in this letter, you would say, Paul, will you please go to inpatient treatment at Westbridge Community Services today? That's where we're talking about what what the solution is. It's not, will you go to an AA meeting? It's not, will you change? It's a very specific request to get the help that we've lined up. And... Again, prior to this meeting, we've set everything in place. 
we have the treatment center, we have the ride to the treatment center, everything is set up. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the fourth part is uh, the boundaries and limits. And that's the part that's done on a separate piece of paper. That's put in the back pocket and held there until the very, very end of the intervention. And only if we don't get the person to agree to go to treatment, if we don't get to yes, then and only then will the boundaries come out. And that seems to be the hardest part of these interventions because that is the part where people are making self-care statements. And again, a lot of families want to talk about him or her and point that finger at the identified addict and say, well, wait a minute, this is all about them getting well. And that's the part where I say, well, this piece is about you getting well. So the boundaries and limits are brought into play if we don't get to yes. And I can tell you a little bit more about the, the process as we go on. I thought I'd stop there for a moment. Well, um, do people typically know that the intervention is going to happen? Or is it um, done more from a surprise factor? It is done more for, as a surprise party model. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a type of intervention called um, the uh, invitational. And, I mean, there are times we'll, we'll do um, an invitational systemic family model. But the problem that I've found is uh, oftentimes we will get the uh, person who's supposed to be showing up at 5 p.m., they'll be on their way to Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's difficult to have the intervention without the person, you know, the identified patient present. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other times when we don't use this sort of surprise party model is we have a very, very well-defended addict sitting there, you know, at the table or in the living room. So most of the times, these are um, done as a surprise. And what I'll do is, as the process goes on, and afterwards, we'll address why did it have to happen that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier that the people have some, some really difficult feelings about this. Why didn't you just ask me to get help mm-hmm. is a question I hear plenty. And it's very easy for me to say, you know, your spouse has been asking you to get help for the past six years. We're trying yeah. to we're, we're trying to um, get around the disease rather than the actual person. And in my training, uh, I talk to people about separating the person from the illness. So I think that's that's very very important to understand. We're not trying to injure the person that you love. What we're trying to do is get in a position where this disease even if just for a moment, is not running the show. Because our experience is that this alcoholism is running the person and, you know, this person is running the family system. So we're we're really trying to get in a position where we can touch that person's heart with love in a way that they, again, have a moment of clarity and can make the right decision. Well, we know um, that when the family gets into treatment or when the family starts to go to Al-Anon, that oftentimes a family member um, enters treatment shortly thereafter. We know that once the family starts to get healthy, um, it leaves less options for the person who um, 
actively using alcohol or drugs. Yes. And, and I think that it's really important for families to understand, as you mentioned, that it's just not about pointing the finger at the individual because right. the family has to change. Once the family starts on this path, right. they need to change regardless of whether the person goes to treatment or not. And if the person does go to treatment, I think sometimes families are ill-prepared for the amount of change that really needs to occur in order You're to right. help the person maintain their recovery. You're so right. It, it's so important to remove the enabling system. And if we take away the enablers, if we address the codependency, the enmeshment in the family system, it makes it very, very difficult for the active addiction to continue. And it also brings about consequences um, quickly. So if a family continues to give their their 35-year-old son a room in the basement and $5,000 a month from the family business just to sit down there and, and use drugs and alcohol. Once they've discontinued this through the systemic family intervention process, he'll go out into the world and the world will get to have its effects on him, which may result in an arrest, a DUI, maybe the guy gets beat up by a drug dealer. So something will happen that will really have this person rethinking his position you know, and looking at the option of help that's been offered by his family. So, And let me also say this about the, the family. I do not use treatment centers that do not have a family component. I only send people to treatment centers that employ family therapy as part of their recovery process. Because you're right, too many times the addict or alcoholic is sent off to treatment only to come home and be faced with a family system that hasn't changed one bit. Right, and or it doesn't understand what it means to be in recovery. And the mm-hmm. family needs to support right. situations like holiday sure. drinking, um, sure. right. you know, all kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Al-Anon is an incredible program. I, I send many people to Al-Anon. There are some great codependency workshops, five-day, seven-day workshops, even 30-day inpatient treatment for codependency, where once we get the identified addict out of the picture, then we can talk about the spouse who is suffering as much or more than the person using the chemicals or or acting out in in the process addiction. And let me say that, too, because I had written some things down before our interview, and I think people need to understand that these interventions occur with all sorts of problems, Um, compulsive gambling, sexual addiction, eating disorders, uh, mental health issues. I get calls from people who have a loved one who is suffering with um, a thought disorder or um, a serious mood disorder. They have been unable to successfully get their loved one into treatment. So this process does not just occur with drug addicts and alcoholics, but with anyone that has a brain disease and can benefit from treatment. The whole family system could they benefit from treatment. Having been around this profession for a number of years, I, I really have seen an evolution in the intervention strategy. Um, I can remember 
back in the old days where it was more of, of an ambush than a surprise party. Right. And that, mm-hmm. and that the identified person often perceived themselves being blamed and shamed. And right. you've spoken a number of times about how this comes about through through love. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could just talk a little bit more about that. Because sure. I think there's some people that get the perception that an intervention is the family swoops down and forces the person to go away. Right. Well, there's there is some swooping involved. But uh, <clears throat> let me talk to you about the, the differences. Um, I will not permit anyone in the family system to abuse, to shame, or to blame the addict. The letters are meant to, again, provide structure. We review each of these letters the evening before. People don't get to speak off the cuff. Mm-hmm. So there will be no shaming, no blaming, no yelling, no screaming. That's one part. Another part is people need to be educated that this is a brain disease. As much as um, other diseases, yelling at someone or being mean and nasty does not help a person heal. So that's another piece. I think the olden days with the Shanghai where you throw a bag over their head and drag them off, that doesn't work. It's not respectful. It's not doesn't involve love or dignity. So... This process involves a choice, and I tell everyone, especially the identified patient, the the addict, today's about a choice. At the end of our meeting, you're going to get to say, yes, I'll accept the help you're offering, or no. But nobody's going to put handcuffs on you. Nobody's going to try to drag you out of the room. You get to make a choice. So oftentimes I can connect with the addict. I've moved to my chair. I've gotten up and sit. I'll sit next to an addict. I had a guy in Houston the other day. He agreed to go to treatment when we spelled it out to him very clearly that we would address his mother's codependency and her enmeshment. That he felt so smothered by his mom. This is a 28-year-old male that when I promised him that we would address that with in the family therapy, he said, okay, I'll go. I'll dress my heroin addiction. So I want to join with that person, let them know this is about everybody in this room, not just about the bad boy sticking a needle in his arm. This is about everybody here. Right. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea in the old days that people had to hit bottom before they could get well Um Obviously, you believe in raising the bottom, so sure. could you talk about that a little bit more? I'd be delighted to. Yeah, thank you. I believe the idea of hitting bottom comes from the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And back in 1937, I'm not sure how many treatment centers were out there. What I know now is that people can enter into recovery at any point on the disease continuum. People can go into treatment at age 15 and if they have you know, the signs and symptoms of this brain disease called addiction, they can get good treatment. And someone can enter into treatment at, you know, 55, at the very, very bottom, the chronic acute alcoholic, and get good treatment. What we talk about in terms of raising the bottom is this. We know that people have consequences to their choices and to their behaviors. I would rather see a person 
sitting in his living room, surrounded by loved ones, talking about his illness, and talking about what to do. I'd rather see that than seeing this guy standing in front of a judge after just running over five kids at a school bus stop while drunk. So what we say is that we're, um, we're making this happen here and now, surrounded by safe people, rather than the awful and terrible things that we know will happen eventually. That's the idea of raising the bottom, bringing the consequence to the present, and along with that consequence, offering right then and there solution. And I think too many times an addict is slapped right in the face with a consequence, but no one is there with their handout and a solution right there saying, here's the plane tickets, here's this guy who's going to travel with you, we found a treatment center that works with dual diagnosis, we've gotten you the time off from work, everything is in place. I'm not sure if I explained it well, you may have other questions about it, but that's my idea of raising the bottom to the person. Right, right. Um, well, and for a lot of people, uh, the bottom is death. I mean, yes, there's, you're right. there's no bottom. It's just they, they die. And right. that, to me, is kind of unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I, you had um, talked a little bit about, like, a successful intervention would would involve the family making uh, change, the person going away for treatment, and then, is there anything else that would characterize a successful intervention? Um, do you when do, do follow-ups with these families? I, I do. I do. When there is a change in the family system, that's a success. And the more people that change, the better. I mean, I've done these where we have eight people at the intervention. Seven of them go back to their old ways, but one person uh, embraces recovery. And I can can and will provide a therapist recommendation um, more if that's it, if we need to find an um, outpatient program. I have connections all over the country. So getting back to the answer, it looks like recovery when people begin to do things differently. And that's a, a short answer. Do you ever have to, um, have you ever had to do an intervention with the same person more than once? Um, I've not. I've had people relapse, and we don't do another intervention. We'll do a family meeting. I have a special team working with um, family-run business. And as you know, in these systems, it's very, very interesting to me. It's very complicated. You'll have the family roles. So you'll have you know, hero, mascot, lost child. And then you'll have the corporate role. Joe is the eldest son, he's the hero, he's also the cocaine addict, and the Comptroller. CEO. Right, exactly. So we have, it's a very rich system for, for therapy and for recovery. But I'm telling you this because I've gone in, done an intervention on the CEO and president, only to come back a month and a half later and address a younger brother who was the director of marketing, and while continuing to work with the sisters, who all also were part of this family. Um, I like to continue to stay working with these families for over a year because, again, this is not an event. It's a process, and 
I want to stay connected with them. And do you do mon- monitoring afterward? Uh, I do. As well, I do. I do some um, monitoring and case management. What we found is that the people who have the highest rates of success in this whole recovery thing are the pilots and the physicians who go to treatment. And the reason that they stay sober the best is they have the most rigorous monitoring. So at Gallant and Associates, we will do ongoing monitoring, including use of hair testing, uh, use of random urine drug screens, and most of all, helping um, to manage all the caregivers. As you well know, when you're working with a family, there's there can be 10 different therapists, psychiatrists, social workers, psychologists. So here at our office, what we're trying to do is keep track of who's doing what and when. Are they showing up for their meetings? Are they participating in the continuing care planning that they've agreed to while they were in treatment? So certainly monitoring is one of the services that we do. And let me say this as a systems guy. Most importantly, we get the loved ones out of the position of probation officer. We do not want the spouse smelling the breath, you know, mm-hmm. did he go to AA, did he not go to AA? Oh, my goodness, I think he's had a couple tonight. That sort of behavior needs to stop. That's where the recovery with Al-Anon comes into play. You know, and let, it's also where you, as case managers, can also take over that role. Of that's right. That's our job. Yeah. We do. We take over that role. And we can catch people before they have a full-blown relapse. I mean, someone might have a lapse. Someone might be in relapse behavior, and they haven't had a drink or a drug yet. But we can sense those things and come into it and adjust the recovery program. Is that through an intervention-type meeting, or how does that adjustment occur? Well, it depends on how bad the the, the sort of slip-up is, if... If we can manage this through our weekly phone uh, consults, we will attempt to do that. If we have to get on an airplane and go out to the person's home and have a sit-down with all members involved, we'll do that. It really depends on, you know, what's our relationship with uh, the recovering person? Uh, how's his track record been thus far? Yeah, we'll do whatever we can to ensure continued recovery. Um, is, it, is it often that you will sit down with one family member do an intervention and then maybe six months or a year later go back and the family calls you back to do an intervention on another family member? That's happened on many occasions. It sure yeah. has. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because remember, when we get the focus off of John, who's the, you know, the cocaine-addicted alcoholic, and John starts to act differently then all of a sudden Nancy's eating disorder begins to pop up. And many times we're in a family system that uh, does a pretty good job of keeping an eye on everybody. You know, they have the, the one finger pointing out, forgetting about the three pointing back. Right. So we've got an externally focused sort of family system, and someone else will fall into the, the role of the broken one. What happens when that one in 
99 times that somebody decides they don't want to go to treatment. They say no at the end of the intervention. What happens then? Okay. Well, remember, we persevere and persist. A lot of persistence. Um, a lot of times the family members have learned to give up after 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. With the systemic family intervention, we have a process that addresses that um, stonewalling, the blaming, the finger-pointing. So I can hear some music in my ear, and I'd, I'd like to talk about what happens, but we'll, sounds we'll like maybe do that after our break. Sounds good. Okay. okay, we'll come back and talk about that after our break. We'll be right back, everybody. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Um, Prior to going to break, we have this blaring music in our ears to know that we can cut. So that's Paul's reference to the music in his ear. He's not hearing things. Um, it's just our little uh, way of uh, prompting each other. So before we went to break, Paul, you were talking about um, what happens when somebody says no at the yes. end of the intervention. Yes. So we persist, we persevere, and let's say we're, we're stuck with no and we're our guy's not going to go to treatment. At that point, people share their boundaries. And again, a boundary is merely a self-care statement. So we'd go around the room. Each person would talk about what they need to do for themselves to have recovery. Uh, at that point, the person says, thanks, okay, I appreciate it, and they get up and they go. Before they go, I give them my card and... They generally walk out the front door. 
we will have a debriefing meeting with the family, and then I continue to support this whole family system in their recovery choices. Oftentimes, and I'm surprised, I shouldn't be surprised any longer, but oftentimes I'll get a call or I'll make a phone call to that person who said no. And maybe we'll sit down at Starbucks and have a cup of coffee. Maybe he has some questions about this treatment center. Maybe he just wants to go on his own. You know, the ego is a big player in this intervention process. Many, many people who've said no the day of the intervention have gone the next day. So I see my job as to support the family system and to continue to confront that addict's uh, broken brain and the denial system by saying, John, how's it going today? Have you thought a little bit about what we talked about? Are you willing to consider treatment? There are some people that I'm still following up with today. It's been one of the ladies I'm talking with probably about 18 months now. So we don't give up. We just change our focus again from getting the guy in the airplane to getting the family to attend these Al-Anon meetings, therapy appointments, self-care, things like that. You know, what you're describing for your organization is a very well-thought-out clinical and professional model, but it's also been my experience that there was a time when um, anyone who had ever sobered up or anyone who had ever uh, thought about it Mm -hmm. thought they could be an interventionist, and Mm -hmm. I wondered if you just wanted to comment on that. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I think... There are a lot of people that help a lot of people, and I really believe in the 12-step fellowships, and uh, the idea of 12-stepping someone is is an important one. Intervention is not that. Uh, Again, myself and my colleagues, those of us who are board-registered interventionists, have been trained in this. We do have a model that we follow. We have um, a board of ethics that we report to, and I would tell anyone out there who's looking into an interventionist to find out if they're part of um, AIS, the Association of Intervention Specialists. Are they board registered? How long have they been doing this? Are they independent? Because what I've found is there are some interventionists who work for treatment centers. So their job is to get that person into XYZ no matter what. I'm not affiliated with any treatment center. I'd be happy to send family member to a place in Seattle, if that seemed right, or Boston or Florida or Chicago, I get paid by the family, not by the treatment center. So there are some definite things to look out for, and above all, make sure that you have a good feel. Does the person that you're talking to really believe in what they do? Do you feel a connection with that person because they're going to be in there working with your family and hopefully bring some healing? So we mentioned in the first segment that your website is www.paulgallant.com. How else could people get in touch with you? You know, That's generally the best way. I, I do have uh, my phone with me at all times. I will do a consultation with anyone anytime, free of charge. And I can give my phone number out, which is simply 203-521-1949. Two zero three five two one one nine four nine, and I have that phone with me uh, 
24-7. And if I'm on an airplane or picking up, uh, working with a family, one of my staff here at Kalan Associates uh, usually answers the phone. And that um, one of the things I know from your information is that your initial consultation is free of charge. Mm-hmm. And that all calls are confidential. That's right. And I think that's important for families to, to mm. know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is important. People are reaching out with some very, very difficult information. Uh, in in our culture, we're pretty good at not airing the dirty laundry. So I can promise anyone who calls that um, I will treat you with dignity and respect and discretion. Um, I want to offer some help. And if, you know, it's scary to say it. I promise you I've probably heard it before. And... Um, you know, perhaps intervention is not the way to go. I, I can be a resource for people, and I get that one a lot, too, that um, people call me, and after we talk for 15, 20 minutes, it seems very clear to me that their loved one needs a good assessment, uh, a local outpatient program, and fortunately, having a national database and being in the field for so long, I have great connections all over the country. So if I don't know a resource, I probably know someone who does. And I, and I think one of the things that you um, brought up earlier that families should really pay attention to is look for an independent interventionist. Mm. And right. that's a question that they should ask anyone sure. that they're trying to hire. Certainly. You know, who do you work for? <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, find out. I mean, personally, this is what I do for a living. I, I don't do... Uh, psychotherapy, I don't do marketing for a treatment center or any of that. So um, I think there are some people with the, um, the recognition of intervention because of the TV show. I think there are some counselors who have decided they're going to hang that shingle out there. They do counseling you know, five days a week, and maybe once a month they'll get a call for an intervention. So I would try to find that out as well. Right. It's a definite skill set that you mm. need to um, learn and uh, practice in order to mm-hmm. get good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say about your company before we uh, close for Well, today? We, we have a staff, uh, and our job is to bring recovery to families who are suffering. And you said at the beginning of the show, we'll go anywhere, anytime. Um, it's true, and I've had the good fortune of being able to help people all over the world. So we... Um, We'll work with you wherever you are, and, and that's geographically or wherever you are in the process. And I have a very friendly group here that will talk to you about uh, your difficulties and maybe some ideas because, again, I'd say probably only one in maybe 25 calls will actually result in an intervention. And the rest of those 24 calls are about offering resources and solution and ideas for people who are out there and having a tough time. Um, I noticed on your telephone, I was wondering, is, is interventions, are they an American thing, or do people in other countries? Yeah, you know, they haven't really caught on too much. Uh, over in Europe, I've, I've done quite a few in London, but they, you know, they have a very, very uptight uh, culture there. I mean, if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. So the amount of denial, not just the family denial, but the cultural denial is huge over there. Mm -hmm. So um, it's 
seems more of an American thing, quite honestly. We're in a position where people are, if you're hurt and you're willing to talk about it, recovery is possible. Some of these other places, they kind of want to throw a Band-Aid on it or look the other way, right. unfortunately. Um, what about access to treatment? Are you finding that there's um, good access to treatment for people, mm. or are you seeing a lot of barriers? I'll tell you, um, finances are the greatest barrier to treatment. You know, we have some parity laws on the books. Um, we're hoping that uh, things change, but third-party payers do not want to pay for good inpatient treatment for the length of time that it takes for folks to get well. So, unfortunately, um, it's a, a battle that's still still being fought. Um, we just want to thank Paul for spending this hour with us and um, for discussing intervention strategies and how to work with addicted uh, family systems. Thank you so much, Paul, and I hope you feel better. Mary, thank you so much. I really appreciate your good work. I'll talk and to you again. Thank you. And once again, it's www.paulgoant.com. Have a good week, everybody. All right. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. 